Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. He starts off with, with the book, of, uh, chapter 8, by saying, now the main point of what we are saying is this, and we'll get to that in a second, but before we get to the main point, I do want to recap where he's been before. So these are some of the, the sub-points that are leading up to this main point today that he's, he's spent eight chapters going into. And you may say, why so long? Why so repetitive? It's because it's that important. And the people that he's speaking to are resistant to the argument. And so it's really important that he's as clear as he can be. And so he goes over and over these things. And he's not done. Fact is, even though we're going to get the main point here in chapter 8, he's going to dig in even deeper in chapter 9, even deeper in chapter 10. And then the last few chapters are are largely application. Um, But it all really comes down to the same point that he wants to make. And so to recap, here's the things. First of all, he says we need a high priest. Now, this is not something that was new to the people he's writing to. Of course, the Hebrews already believes they needed a high priest. But he goes over and reiterates that because, again, he wants them to understand we're not saying that the law was was wrong-headed, right, or wrong. We're not saying that the these things that you've been honoring are bad. You're right. We need a high priest. So for us, because we're not as familiar with this idea of a rabbinical high priest or a Hebrew high priest, um, let's talk about what he said in the first eight chapters about why we need a high priest. So first of all, he says we need a high priest to mediate for us with God. The high priest can, can be there to stand between us and God because God is so big and God is so holy. And the word holy in a lot of ways means other, right? In his beauty, he is beyond any beauty we've ever seen. In his justice, he is beyond any justice we've ever seen. In his perfection, in his purity, he is beyond any perfection and purity we've ever seen. So while holy does mean there's a certain sense of purity to it and morality to it, of course, It's more than that. It's an otherness. It's not just a different ethical form. It's not just that he's a little bit better than us. It's not certainly not self-righteousness in that sense. It is just this idea that in everything that we see, he is so completely above that it's like he's other. We can't quite grasp all that. And so in order to connect with God through the old covenant, we need a high priest to mediate for us with God. And to come between us and God, to introduce us to God, to introduce God to us, to to pave the way for our interactions with God. Um, And part of the way he does that is he offers gifts of thanksgiving and repentance. So when we have things, we just want to say, God, thank you so much for my life. Thank you for the things you've given me. Thank you for even having a relationship with me, even though you are other. God goes out of his way beyond the high priest to interact with people all the time. It's not that he's unwilling. It's just that there's this... There's this disconnect because of, of, of sin in our lives, because of who we are. So anyway, he, the high priest mediates for us with God, and part of the way he does this is the offer gifts of thanksgiving, but he also offers these sacrifices of repentance, these atonement sacrifices which say, you know, we know we've blown it, we haven't followed your law, we haven't done the things you've asked us to do, and so God provided within the law a way for them to get back on track, right, to, to recoup. To, to acknowledge, yeah, we messed up and we're sorry and we're coming back. A way to apologize um, and to receive forgiveness. So that's the high priest does that. He, he helps us with that. The thing that's interesting and the, the author of Hebrews points out, which was is clear if you just read the Old Testament. I mean, it is really clear. But, but I think it was important for him to make sure that Hebrews really thought about was that this high priest is constantly working in this role because each effort that he makes is incomplete. 
So, in other words, he brings a gift of thanksgiving, but it's never exactly what God is worth. He's worth much more than that, because it's just that big. And we bring the gifts of repentance, but we have to keep bringing them, because we keep messing up, right? We keep after having to come back. Um, some of you have been, are, or know Catholics, and, and there, you know, it's that cycle, right? The confession, you have to continually go into the confession, and as soon as you leave the confession, there's, like, it's not very long before you've messed up again. It's an incomplete sort of, uh, at least that's how some people see the confession. Um, but it's this incomplete atonement. And so that's how it was with the high priest. He was constantly doing it. It is really amazing. If you actually add up all the sacrifices that the priests were doing on a regular basis, it is a nonstop job. I mean, it is, it is crazy. You, you begin to see why they needed an entire tribe whose job was to take care of the temple and the sacrifices, way beyond just the high priest or even just the priest. And so, but this is what we see, right? That, that we need a high priest because we need someone to be constantly mediating for us with God, offering gifts of thanksgiving and repentance, and constantly working in this role because each effort is incomplete. It doesn't, it doesn't make it so forever. Just happens over and over. So this is the first point that the author of Hebrews has been making in the first eight chapters, that we need a high priest. In order to have this relationship with God, we need a high priest. The second point he makes about the high priest is that the priest needs to be where God is. So, in other words, if the high priest is going to intermediate, is going to mediate between us and God, he needs to not only be able to interact with us, but he needs to be able to go to where God is, which is... Right? That's kind of a conundrum, right? How do you go where God is? Is God in his heavens? Is God, he's a spirit. So how do you go where God is? And so what we see in the Old Covenant, what the author of Hebrews points out to us, is that the, for the priest to be where God is, it means, number one, he has to be in a place holy enough for God. And what does holy mean in this context? Well, it means other. Well, how do you create something other? It means you set it apart. Sometimes holiness is described as set apart. That makes sense because, again, it's different from everything else. And so we set apart a place, which we say is God's, and that becomes it. You know, the Sabbath is holy. Why is the Sabbath holy? Because it's a day you set aside to be with God, right? There's nothing sort of magic about a specific day, as Paul points out to us. But there is something about setting aside places and days for God. And <laughs> really, to remember that everything belongs to God. But it is, in, in the case of the, the, the covenant, to be with God, the priest has to meet somewhere, which is holy enough, which is, is appropriate for God as holy as God is to be. And so that's number one, has to be a place holy enough for God. But number two, the priest also has to be holy enough to enter. The priest himself has to be set apart. He has to be consecrated. He has to, he has to say, for this moment, my only purpose is to be with God. And all other purposes will be laid aside for this moment. And all other interests will be laid aside for this moment, and all of the desires will be laid aside for this moment, right? That's kind of, I think, the idea of the, the priest being holy enough to enter. Um, and so we see that. We see that the place has to be holy enough for God, and the priest has to be holy enough to enter this place. And that leads us to the third point. Oh, actually, I don't have this in here, but we'll, we'll talk about it. That means, what is this holy place, right? What is this holy place where God is? Let's actually go back. There we go. What is this place? Well, it's the temple or the tabernacle, right? We talked about that, that it, it was a tent they created in the wilderness, then it became a temple when they got to a permanent place. But the temple was modeled just like the tabernacle. It was just scaled up um, and more permanent materials or semi-permanent, more permanent. 
So the priest has, so, and then remember we talked about the curtain, and the author of Hebrews talked about the curtain, that, that in the tabernacle there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies, right? The most holy place, the place that is set apart, the place where they were encouraged to think of as if God were there. Again, they understood the metaphor of this. They did know God could actually be there, but they understood the metaphor that God doesn't really live in this little tiny room that they have in the temple, right? Too small for God. And God makes it very clear, if they ever forgot it, that the earth is his footstool and the heavens are his throne. But he wanted them to think about this place, to set it apart, to treat it as holy, as a place where the priests can meet God. So they have this most holy place. Only the priest is allowed to go in there, and only when the priest has set himself apart through a number of significant ceremonies, cleansing himself, washing himself, doing sacrifices. All these things are ways of setting himself apart for this purpose of meeting with God, and then he can go meet with God. And they treated this most holy place, this holy of holies, with a great deal of reverence and fear, so much so that they, they had preparations for if the high priest died in there, how were they going to get him out without having to go in there themselves? And God had encouraged them to think of it this way by, in fact, sometimes killing people uh, who were not reverent about it, right? Who treated it casually. So this is all important. It's a whole place that's holy enough for God, and the priest has to be holy enough to enter. Now, let's be clear. There's nothing in Scripture that says that the high priest is sort of a better cut of human being than the rest of the people. He's not. He's just someone chosen. He's someone who's been chosen by accident of birth, set apart by role, and then set apart by ceremony. And these are the ways in which he's set apart. There was never any indication that he was a better person. But he's set apart by a lifestyle, by a habit, by choice, by his choice and others' choice. He's set apart, and he then can enter the, the Holy of Holies. And so that's the, the tabernacle, the temple, that's all part of this process. That we need a high priest, and the priest needs to be where God is to mediate from us. And all of this... All of this was part of a covenant that, that the, the Israelites had with God. And it's a covenant in which God said to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. So as they look around the world, they see all around them that nations have gods, right? Now, they're not real gods. They're, they're made up. But, but there's, their nations have gods, and they, they, they believe that these gods protect them specially. And, and it's kind of this thing that everybody has. And so God looks at the Israelites, and he says, I want to show people who the true God is. And the way that people understand it is they look at nations, and nations that are successful, they say, well, that God must be good. And nations that are not successful, they say, well, that God is not powerful enough. And so he says, I want to show people who the true God is, so let's, let's show them how it works, right? We'll make you the most powerful, the most blessed, the most comfortable, the most beautiful nation on earth, and we'll do that as you follow my laws. And as you follow my laws, then people will know I am the true God, and then we can invite them in to be part of it, which was always the plan. If you read carefully the covenant, you'll see that, that the plan was always to bless other nations with it as well. Um, I need to do something here real quick. Okay, so that was all, sorry, my apologies. So that was always the plan, was to do that. So, so he sets up this covenant, and in this covenant he says, you, uh, you will be my people. I've chosen you to be my people. I chose you uh, for reasons that God never explains, um, but I chose you, and you will be my people. And then he says this, though. But what you need to do is you need to follow my law. You need to do the things I tell you to do so that, that when you obey them and I bless you, people will know this is what's important to God. So, for example, he says to them, take care of the poor. He says, don't, he says this a lot, which is why I bring it up. He says, don't oppress the poor. Don't cheat them, right? And, and take care of, your, of women and take care of the disadvantaged 
the, the widows and the orphans, all the people that need the most help. He says, take care of those people. Don't only help people who can help you back, but really help those people who need your help. And he says, I want you to do this so that when people look at you as a nation and you're blessed, they'll say, look at what that nation does. They take care of people that don't bring them any benefit, but they seem to get blessed for it. So they must serve a God who cares about the lowest among us. Right? That's kind of the idea that as you do this, people will know the kind of God I am. So he sets up this law, he sets up this covenant, he says, as you follow it, you'll get blessed. That's how people will know that I am the God I am. But if you don't follow it, then conversely, if I just if you're still just as blessed, people are gonna look and say, Oh, I guess that God doesn't really care about these things. And so know that when you don't follow my laws, you won't be blessed. There will be issues, you'll be overrun by other kingdoms and other countries, and there will be problems that will exist. And so this is the covenant he makes. Now, as you go through the Old Testament, you see that God's patience, long-suffering, his love, his mercy, way exceeds his sort of sternness about this. And there are, it is true that because he wants to protect his reputation, he does, he does sort of follow through on this covenant. But he can never abandon the Israelites, and he never does. And he always comes back time after time after time to rescue them, even when they don't deserve it. Always when they don't deserve it. And yet, we do have a story where this covenant plays out, where when they follow him, they're blessed, and when they don't, they're not. And because of that, other people begin to know who this God is and what he's like. But there's a really interesting thing about this covenant. And it becomes more and more clear as you go through the Old Testament. I've already mentioned it, but we're going to put it in terms here, and it's this. The covenant cannot be broken by one. That one is God. No matter what happens, God cannot be, he can't break his promises. And it's clear. Sometimes... I don't think he actually ever wants to, but you could sort of feel if he were human, that that would be, he'd be like, I give up, right? I have gone so far with you guys, but he can't. He cannot lie, says scripture to us. He cannot break his promises. The author of Hebrews made this point when he talks about God not only promised it, but then he promised with an oath upon himself. If you go back and read the Old Testament passage where he first makes the covenant with Abraham, he makes it very one-sided. He doesn't even let, it's kind of like he doesn't let Abraham sign the contract, so to speak. He only signs it himself puts Abraham to sleep so he can't even do that. So that God honors his one-sided covenant and he honors it throughout the entire Old Testament and it was always his plan to do so. And, and, but this is what we see, the covenant cannot be broken by him, but it can't be kept by the other, the other party being the Israelites. No matter what they do, they just cannot stay true. They continue to be faithless. They continue to go their own way. As soon as they repent and are rescued, it's like immediately they start the downhill slide towards not trusting God again. They have some incredible kings, some incredible revivals. All of them are temporary. It's like you have a really great king and the very next king that comes along just kind of sometimes goes complete polar extreme the other direction. And, and so you do have this picture of this covenant in which one side keeps it the whole time and the other side can't keep it no matter what they do. So one cannot break it, the other can't keep it. That is a problem in a covenant. Right? Now, it's not a problem God was unaware of. He knew this would happen. But you got to see that is a failing or a weakness or a frailty in the covenant. Right? God knew this covenant had a lifespan, but partly he knew that because he knew this point, that the covenant cannot be broken by one nor kept by the other, that it ends up being very one-sided. And so he says to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is just reiterating the covenant we talked about. You will be my people and I will be your God. You will keep this eternal law and be blessed or break it and be cursed. But they never keep it. And he never breaks it. <laughs> and so this is sort of the, the covenant that we see. So this is the recap. These are kind of the primary things I really want you to see 
as we begin to get to the to the uh, to the main point. Number one, we need a high priest. The priest needs to be where God is. And the covenant cannot be broken by one, nor kept by the other. And now, with these ideas in mind, let's read Hebrews 8, and I think you'll see how he says, so here's, here's the main point. We need a high priest, and the priest needs to be where God is, and the covenant cannot be broken by one, nor kept by the other. And so the main point is, he starts by saying, we do have such a high priest. We have a better high priest. He says, and the main point we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Why do we have a better high priest? I love the way it says here, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We see a bunch of things wrapped in there, why he's the high priest, but one of the things that stands out is because he sat down. <laughs> I mean, we talked about how the, the high priest had to constantly do this over and over and over, right? Because it was incomplete. But it's like Jesus accomplished what the high priest couldn't and sat down. He's done. He's already completed the work. There's nothing for us to add. There's nothing for him to add. The work has been completed. That is pretty awesome, actually. That is one of the biggest things about him being the high priest. But the other thing, it goes on. It says he sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the priest needs to be where God is. Well, where is this priest? Well, he's sitting with God. And he serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being, right? We're going to see more on that in a second. So we'll come to that thought. But let's keep reading he says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Remember, the high priest was there to offer the gifts and the sacrifices for the covenant. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. So what did Jesus offer? Himself. Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice. So he brings the ultimate gift. He brings his own holiness. And he uses his holiness to make us holy, says scripture. He calls us into this place with God through his own holiness. Christ made him, God made him who had no sin to become sin on our behalf or an atonement for sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God. It's like he trades our sin for his righteousness on their behalf. He doesn't become less righteous, but nonetheless, his holiness becomes our holiness. It's not a veil like God can't really see who we really are anymore. I do not like it when we use that phrase. We talk about when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's not really true. God never sees things incompletely, right? He's never fooled. He's never deceived. Be assured, child of God, that when he looks at you, he sees exactly what you are, which is a child of God made righteous by Christ. He's not looking through a veil of Christ's own righteousness that confuses him, right? Now, he sees the... The, the flesh that you still wrestle with, which someday will no longer be an issue for you. He sees the mind, which still sometimes labors in deceitful thoughts, which will no longer be an issue for you. But I want you to understand that Christ's righteousness became ours. He finished that job. So every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. He's saying if Jesus were just going to be like a priest of the earth, he wouldn't be. He's already talked about reasons he wouldn't be. He's not of the priesthood, he's not of, the priesthood of Levite, right? Like we talked about last week. He's not of that priesthood, but also they're already offering all the gifts that can be offered on earth. He offered something better and different. They also, he says, serve as at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. 
That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The building of the tabernacle in the temple is unlike anything else in Jewish history, or as far as I know, any history. Maybe some other places claim the same. But, but what's interesting is that God gave Moses the blueprints, very specific blueprints. I guess the ark would be similar, but he gave very specific blueprints for the tabernacle to Moses. And he said, do this completely, exactly. Follow these dimensions, exactly. And he did. And then when they built the temple, they did the same thing, but scaled it up according to God's directions. So for some reason, God wanted them to make this thing exact. This tabernacle, which they only used for 40 years, he wanted it to follow an exact pattern. Why? Because it was a copy. It was a presentation. It was a reflection. It was a shadow of heaven. Now, we don't know what that means. And if you're worried that, oh my gosh, heaven sounds terrible, if it's like the temple or the tabernacle, please understand how different a shadow is from substance, right? When you see a shadow of something, it is one-dimensional and it has no color. <laughs> and then you see that actual thing that is casting a shadow and it looks completely different, right? Same basic shape, you can tell one was the shadow of the other, but it's got color and it's got dimensions to it. Now imagine, the temple is amazing. I mean, if you really read it, all the gold and all the, it's just an amazing piece of construction. And you think of that temple and then realize that is the shadow, that is the black and white, gray, really, uh, one-dimensional image of heaven. How much bigger will the color and the, and, the, and the actual dimensional nature of heaven be? And again, I, don't, I think if we think that only the physical things, we're probably missing the point anyway, but that's part of the whole shadow, right? You don't really see what a shadow is a shadow of. It bears the shape, but it is so different from the substance. Same is true of the temple and the tabernacle. It is a shadow. It bears the shape. But when we see the reality, it will be so much more beautiful. It will be so much more incredible to see. And so, but that's why it was so important, right? Because it was a shadow. And so the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the holy of holies, the most holy place, these are all just shadows, but Jesus has entered into the actual place, the actual presence of God. Why? Because he is God. Yes, he is God and he is man. And this shows how he was able to be both in the presence of God and in the presence of us and bring us together in a sense. And so now, though, he sits at the right hand of the God, he serves in the temporal and in the tabernacle, which is the real thing, which none of us have ever seen, but we've seen copies of, and we've seen shadows of. And that's why it was so important that we get this, this one-dimensional colorless view so we'd at least know what the shape was. And if God is that detailed about the shadows, just imagine what that means about the reality. I just think it's phenomenally exciting. And what Jesus is offering is so much better because he enters the actual holy place, the actual presence of God, the actual most holy place, the most sacred place on earth in the presence of God, sitting there in the throne of heaven, whatever that is. And he offers himself. And he, he mediates with his own sacrifice, with his own self. So we have a better high priest whose picture of high priest is so much different from the shadow as the picture of heaven is different from the temple. He goes on, he says, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is the point he's been making. Not that the law was bad. Not that the law was a mistake. Not that God changed his mind. Not that God became a different person. Not that you have to change religions. He's not telling the Jews that. He's telling them that everything that you've clinged to, that you're holding on to, was good, but it's a shadow. Turn around and view the substance 
that, that is being shined on that is producing the shadow. But listen to this. He says the new covenant is established on better promises. We talked about the covenant, right? The covenant cannot be broken by one nor kept by the other. What is, it's not that God made worse promises, right? But, but, but maybe he did. What does it mean that there are better promises? What was wrong with the old covenant? Listen to this. Watch this closely because this takes a really, I think, beautiful turn. He says, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So what was wrong with the first covenant? Well, it's hinted at here somehow, right, in this, this failing that we already identified. But it's not that God was mistaken. It's not that he set up a bad covenant. It's not that he's temperamental and moody. It's not that he became gentler with age. God doesn't change. It's the same God. This has all been part of his amazing plan. What does he say? It says this, but God found fault with the people. Now, you may not like that at first, but keep reading. But, 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 but the bottom line here is we keep reading is what's wrong with the covenant? The people, <laughs> right? It's not God. It's the people. Why? Because God can't break the covenant, but the people can't keep it. What is wrong with the covenant? The what's wrong with the covenant is the people can't keep it. So says, God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So here's a prophecy that we're now seeing played out, says the author of Hebrews. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. So the original covenant was an external law that the people couldn't keep. And they weren't able to keep it. And I love this. Note this response of God. He finds fault with the people. And his reaction to finding fault with the people is to love them better and more and create a new covenant. Right? It's not to say, oh, I give up. Because God cannot break his covenant. And because God is God of love. And again, he wasn't really surprised by this. He knew that this would happen. That's why he prophesied it so long ago. He looked, the day is coming when I'm going to cast you out and you'll no longer be part of my people. Now somebody says, says the day is coming when I will make a new covenant and it will be a better covenant. It will not be like the one that you keep turning away from. How will it be different? I will write the law in your minds and hearts. God knows he has to change the people. He can't just simply... He can't, the law is still perfect. It's still a reflection of who God is. But they aren't able to follow this external law. In another place, in another prophecy in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart. Right now you have a heart of stone. It's unresponsive. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a heart which is malleable, which will listen to me, which will feel and respond. So what's new is he changes us. What are the better promises of the new covenant? That he changes us. He doesn't just change our behavior. He doesn't just call us to a better life or a better standard. Those are all true. But he changes us. We don't go to heaven now as Christians because God simply changed his mind. Because he thought, well, it's okay. I guess I'll let you in anyway. Because he decided he was less holy. Because he was less other. And he brought himself down to our level and said, let's just all be mediocre together. <laughs> no. We get to go to heaven because he changed our very state. He didn't just change our status. He changed our state. He changed our very nature. He made us holy. And he writes the law in our hearts. And he writes the law in our minds. And that is the better promise. And he promises to continue that to change even our flesh and our, the way we think. And those are, that's continuing process and the way we behave comes out of all that. And so in the final analysis, when we reach heaven, we will be perfectly fit for heaven. And that is what is provided at the gospel.
He goes on, he says, as this happens, I will be their God and they will be my people. See, it's a reiteration of the original point of the first covenant, but it's a better covenant because we have a better high priest who can make it so, who can mediate for us in a way which is complete rather than over and over and over. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That whole system, this is another problem with the system, right? And again, it was a shadow and it was okay. We had to understand the holiness of God. We had to understand the need for a high priest. But in that system, did everyone have equal access to God? Not really. Not really, right? But now what does God say under the new covenant, under the gospel, under the amazing thing that he's done is everybody has equal access to God. Jesus makes this point so often in the gospels. It is amazing to me how many years I missed it. And how many years people I know miss it. He makes the point over and over and over that, you know, in the world, the way the world runs, if you have money, you have more access. If you have power, you have more access. If you have influence, you have more access. But in the kingdom of God, he says over and over, even the meekest, the poorest, and the lowest will have equal access to God. And in fact, because some of those who are so used to having access through their power and their riches, they may find themselves unable to give up their power and riches, and they may deny themselves access. And in that sense, it might be easier for the poor. It might be easier for those who recognize that they can't do it themselves. But the bottom line is everybody, from rich to poor, from powerful to weak, has access to God through the gospel. Same equal access. This is the beauty of the gospel. There is no reason that you cannot be part of this kingdom and part of the gospel. No reason. I don't care what you've heard. Somebody told you you have to change your behavior first. If somebody told you you have to, to change your thinking about everything first. If somebody told you you have to go to a specific church. None of that is true. Your access to the gospel is the same as everyone else's. It's through Jesus Christ. He's going to get into the details next week of how the blood of Christ provides that access. It's a weird thing for us to say as Christians, but we do. And he's going to get into that in chapter 9. But for now, just understand, we all have access to God in the exact same way, through the same door, through Jesus. And there is no other way. And that is not a restriction on you. That is an encouragement to you because it means you do not have to find the secret door, the secret extra way to get in that nobody else gets. You have the same access I have that Paul the Apostle has, that King David had. Everybody gets to the Father through the Son, and we all have equal access to it. Celebrate that, rejoice in that, and embrace that. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Right? That's the bottom line. He's not just forgiving us. He is removing our sins from us as far as the East is from the West, says the scripture in another place. This new covenant makes us holy people. There will no longer be regular necessary atonement. The high priest no longer has to continue to offer the gifts and sacrifices because Christ offered it once for all of us. By calling this new covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. This was their problem. They were like, how can we let the old covenant go? And he's saying, because it's a shadow. And if you've been living in shadows and then you suddenly turn and see the substance, that shadow is going to be obsolete. It's not important. It's a shape, but it led you here. It's like we've talked about. If you follow a signs, literal signs, I'm not talking about spiritual signs. If you follow road signs to get to a specific destination, when you get to that destination, you can forget about the signs. 
They're obsolete. You don't need them anymore. If you have a map and it leads you to this beautiful magic land, and when you get to the beautiful magic land, you are never leaving it, then that map is obsolete. You don't need that map unless you were going to leave and come back, but you're not. You're here forever. That's what he's saying. The new covenant is here forever. You never need to go back to the obsolete. It wasn't wrong. It wasn't bad. It was a beautiful thing in its own right because it led us here. But now we're here. And so that is the main point. The old covenant, the old priest, the old law, these were all only colorless, dimensionless shadows of the incredible plan of the gospel from before time began. This is not a new idea. This is where we've been going all along. And the fact that we know it's where we've been going all along is because of this, the shadows that we have seen. Here, here's the way I like to think of it. If you can stretch your mind just a little bit and think of time as a timeline. Think of a physical timeline. It's just a picture. This is not the way the universe works, but I think it's a pretty good picture. So picture, if you would, a timeline, a physical space timeline. And, and in this timeline, you've got, you know, you've got history that comes along from, from, from this side to this side, or as you're looking at it, whatever, left to right, however you want. But you've got, you've got this pattern. So we've got the Old Testament, right? It's all happening over here in the Old Covenant. We've got the gospel here. And we've got whatever's the future for us over here. And then we've got eternity over here, right? And let's say that over here in eternity is the light source for all of history. And it's bright. It's so bright because everything's perfect and enlightened and it's beautiful. And so the light source for all of history shines from there and it shines back across this timeline. And I think what the author is saying is Jesus appears on this timeline, right? He actually is the source as well, but he appears on this timeline. The gospel is here and the light shines on the gospel and it casts a shadow back over all of history. And that shadow is the temple and the priests and the tabernacles and the law. So the shadow is good, but it's a shadow. And the truth is that we still live in the shadow lands on some level, right? I mean, we have seen Jesus revealed to us the light. But then he went back. He went back up here on the timeline, again, just in our picture. He's back over here, shining light backwards. So we've seen the light. We understand the substance a little bit more now. We have the picture of the gospel. But the truth is, even the gospel to us, we can only see in shadowy terms. Paul says we see God as if through a veil dimly, right? So we see more. We're closer to the source, just chronologically. And so we see more, and we've had more revealed to us. But even as we see things now, we still live in the Shadowlands. We still struggle and reach for the beauty, the perfection that is to come. And it is good that we do so. And we should continue to do that. You know, I think even as we talk about the, the, the idea that Jesus is the true, perfect peace, priest of the true, perfect covenant, the ways we describe that, the author of Hebrews describes it in ways that Hebrews understand. In 21st century America, we describe it in way we, ways we Americans understand. But I think sometimes we get far too caught up in the, the arguments about the words that we should use to describe this beautiful picture of the gospel, in the words that we use to describe what it means to embrace the gospel. We get so caught up in them, and the truth is, I think we're getting caught up in shadows. I think we're getting caught up in trying to describe something that is, that is so beautiful, we don't know what the full dimensional, full of color picture actually looks like. We only know what we've got. And what we've got is important because we have to articulate it some way, just like the law was important. And what we've got is, is forever. I'm not saying the gospel will be replaced, but our understanding of the gospel certainly, certainly will become more dimensional and it will become more colored. And we will see Jesus for who he is and we will be amazed and we will say, that is what I thought reality always was, but I never could quite grasp it. That's what I think.
And we're told the amazing thing is when we get to heaven, not only will we see Jesus as he is, with all the color and all the dimensions that we miss right now, but it says we'll also see ourselves and realize that we are like him. We will see that he has done a work in ourselves that we can barely believe right now, that we can barely grasp. Like the Hebrews, I think sometimes we settle for signs and hints and approximations. Sometimes some of you are afraid that you're missing something in the shadows and you want to search the shadows for another answer. And I want to say, stop. All the shadows point back to Jesus. All of them. Even the ones that look evil and ugly right now because they're shadows. Right? They're corrupted images of the reality. But everything points back to the solidness, the substance, the beauty, the perfection, the justice, the holiness, the love, the grace, the mercy that is Jesus. So stop looking in the shadows for something else because you'll only settle for something corrupted and filthy when you should be reaching for the perfection that Jesus is. You're not missing anything when you reach for Jesus. Jesus is not antiquated. He has not lost value over the years because he stands at that apex of history and the light shines back to all of us and we're going that direction. Don't settle in the journey for getting halfway home. Like, shadows can be beautiful. Absolutely they can be. And we should enjoy the shadows we're in. And we should appreciate the journey we're on. And we should see the beauty around us because God is gracious and provides it for us to see. But can you also cling to the hope that it is but a shadow of something infinitely more beautiful? Can you recognize that the little bit of justice and love and poetry that we eke out on this planet is but a shadow? of true poetry and true music and true justice, true beauty, true love, true holiness. I think we live in a black and white film, which is a beautiful black and white film. But we gotta always fix our eyes on the perfection to come and the beauty and the life and the love and the justice and the freedom, which we can only taste in these days. And that's what the author of Hebrews reminds us of. The gospel is beautiful. It is substantive. It is the light from which all our shadows come. But let's keep reaching for the light. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and let's keep moving forward. So I hope that is encouraging to you. I know it is to me. And that is Hebrews 8, and that is the main point. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.